This is Space 101.1 LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonanno. Welcome to a special live broadcast. We're live at the Memorial Wall at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium at Seattle Center in downtown Seattle. It's VJ Day. It's the 78th anniversary of the end of World War II, night of the very the biggest party Seattle has probably ever seen before or since. Thousands and thousands of people on the streets celebrating the fact the hostilities were over. But the reason we're here is not really so much to talk about VJ Day, but we're doing sort of a special edition of Cascade of History. We're live on a Monday night because VJ Day falls on a Monday. We're also a couple days away from the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board looking at the Landmarks nomination for Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. Uh, you might have been following the story over the last couple years. The stadium's been neglected for a long time. It's, it's kind of weird. It's owned by the school district, but it's uh, the only part of Seattle Center that's not owned by the city. And so it's kind of a little island. And out here at the parking lot, we're parked right against the high school memorial wall, which has about 800 names of Seattle Public School District, uh, Seattle Public Schools students or alums who died in World War II. Uh, the wall was dedicated back in 1951. The stadium dates a little bit earlier to 1947. And a lot of us believe that the stadium is the memorial. The wall is just the names of people that came along later, but the stadium is the memorial. So um, I've been following the story for a long time, and what we're going to do tonight is talk about a lot of the history and context that's missing from the Landmarks nomination. This is a little in the weeds here, bear with me here, but the Seattle Public School District prepared a Landmark nomination that the city's going to review on Wednesday of this week, 3.30 p.m. at City Hall. It's a public meeting. You're welcome to attend. But that Landmark nomination is missing all of the history. I mean, they talk about the architect, they talk about the dates, but some of the context of what happened here in this facility during, World, during um, the Seattle World's Fair in 1962, uh, what happened here in terms of sports history, and what happened here in times of music history. So I've got some great guests who are joining us tonight. In a moment, we're going to talk to Albert Fisher, who was here for those opening ceremonies back in 1962 in April. Then we're going to talk to uh, David Eskenazi, who's a terrific sports historian and collector of sports memorabilia about the sports history that's missing from that Landmarks nomination. And then there's a local guy named Eric Magnuson, who's a music history expert. We'll talk about some of the concerts that happen in this facility that, are again, aren't listed in that Landmarks nomination. I mean, you could... A Landmarks nomination is supposed to tell you this history and the context and give you an idea of why a facility, a building, would be more than, more than just the sum of its parts, more than just a bunch of concrete. It's what happens in the building and how it's used by the public and how it fits into the community. That's what we're going to try and do tonight. This is kind of a public service. I'm hoping all the Landmarks... Preservation Board members are listening right now. If they're not, we'll send them the link to the podcast, and maybe we'll send them a transcript as well. But this is sort of a, not a, this will, none of this will be on the midterm, of course. We want this to be an enjoyable night of storytelling about uh, Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. But we will, we will definitely get into the weeds a little bit, because that's kind of what, that's history requires you to get into the weeds sometimes. All right, uh, let's see. Let's, let's, let's say a quick hi to uh, Eric Magnuson, who's going to join us a little bit later on. Um, He's hey, on, yeah, there you go. 
Hey, Eric, thanks for joining us tonight. I think he's on, is he on three or two? I can't remember. Hey, thanks for stopping by, Eric. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are doing this. Yeah, as we were talking a little bit before the show. You have a, you do a little, you do, you take people on tours of Seattle music history all the time. Right? Yeah, I've got a small business that's geared toward people that are wanting to come to Seattle and find not only music history, but that tends to be the thing that people find me for. Terrific. So we're going to hear from you a little bit later on the show about all the great concerts and artists like local and national, all the music that's not in that Landmarks nomination. Okay, but our first guest is Albert Fisher. We're on the, he's on the phone with us from California. Hey, Albert, how are you doing? I'm doing just great. Thank uh, you very much, Felix, for having me on. It's great to hear your voice. You know, when I had the idea to do this program to kind of fill in some of the blanks that are missing from that Landmarks nomination form for Memorial Stadium, I thought, boy, who could I get to talk about what happened here during the World's Fair? And it didn't take me more than a millisecond to think of your name. What was your job during the 1962 Seattle World's Fair? Um, I was the head of television and motion pictures for the fair, so I was responsible for all of the uh, major network television shows that came out of uh, out of the fair, uh, including we did a, a big Roy Rogers Day 11 television special. Uh, we did the uh, of course the opening of the ceremonies, which I was one of the producers of. And that uh, originated there from the Memorial Stadium. So, what did that? Uh, what, and probably the the biggest thing that I was personally involved in uh, was being the uh, the technical advisor and coordinator for the shooting of the Elvis Presley movie. It happened at the World's Fair. That's cool. What a cool job! And you were all of I think what twenty one at the time. I I turned twenty one uh, in July of, uh, of sixty two. Right on. So when uh, when I produced the opening day ceremonies coming out of the the stadium there, I was uh, uh, a kid of twenty, and I had only been in Seattle maybe for about three weeks or so. That's right. Uh, having uh, come in from New Orleans, my hometown. Now help us kind of take us back to those opening ceremonies because those opening ceremonies, I think they're mentioned just as opening ceremonies in the Landmarks nomination. But there was a pretty big all-star deal, right? And it was there were lots of celebrities and VIPs, and one even very, very VIP, who you dealt with directly as part of that event, right? Yes. Uh, as uh, the producer of the opening day ceremonies, we, we brought in a number of celebrities uh, to be uh, on the stand there. The announcer for the ceremonies was Frank Blair, uh, who was the newscaster for the NBC Today Show nationwide? Uh, so he came in as the announcer. Uh, Danny Kay, the uh, uh, the famous uh, comedian, uh, did the um, uh, reading of the the World's Fair Creed. Wow. Uh, Mary Costa, the opera singer, uh, led the national anthem. It was uh, uh, a a really great uh, grand event with, uh, of course, all the politicians, Albert Rossellini, the governor, and uh, uh, Joe Gandhi, the president of the fair, and uh, the mayor of Seattle. I mean, everybody was there on the on the podium, as was I. Uh, <laughs> I had a, uh, a little platform uh, on the left-hand side there of the, uh, of the podium where I was... Uh, kind of handcuffed to a telephone as I am right now talking to you. Um, <laughs> Make it sound so painful. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and who were you on the phone with? 
Well, the uh, I, I was uh, talking to the White House uh, because President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy at the time, uh, was going to touch a golden telegraph key that was originally used to inaugurate the uh, Seattle Exposition of 1909, and that uh, key sent a signal up to Andover, Maine, to a radio telescope, bounced it off the moon, received it again, <laughs> and it arrived at Memorial Stadium. And there was a big neon sign that said Century 21, or the C-21, uh, that lit up uh, precisely at 12 <laughs> noon when that signal arrived. And that kicked off fireworks and balloons going up and bands and it was the formal uh, opening of the fair itself. Wow. Uh, so my, my job was to coordinate everything through the White House for Kennedy to be able to give his speech. So I'm 20 year old kid, me uh, sitting on the platform <laughs> there and I'm talking to the guy that I was in touch with uh, from the White House on the other line uh, on my headset and uh, so he's asking me about what's the weather like and how's what's the fair like and the crowds and everything so we're just chit-chatting uh, you know kind of uh, like our conversation right now and it was very casual and, and nice and then finally I look at my stopwatch and I see we're about one minute to go before the president is to start speaking <laughs> and so I tell the guy on the on the other end of the line I said uh, well it's about a less than a minute to go right now is the president standing by and the guy that I've been talking to for the last five minutes uh, very casually said this is the president <laughs> and I've been talking for about five minutes with President Kennedy not realizing it that's such a great story. I love that story. I, I could hear that story over and over again. That's just that's such a great classic 1962 Seattle World's Fair story. It all kicks off with that. And I mean, it, it would it be exaggerated to say that that event, everyone gathered for that event. I mean, that's got to be one of the most all-star, high-powered, you know, cultural figures, political figures, all that sort of thing. And Kennedy's by phone, of course. But I can't think of any other occasion in Seattle history before or since where that many people have been that focused in this one place for you know a couple hours. That seems. Is that am I crazy or is that is that an exaggeration? No, it it, it was it was really an incredible event. The uh, the entire stadium was filled from uh, from the ground all the way up to the uh, the nosebleed seats at the top of the stadium, all the way around. Uh, there was a flyover of uh, uh, military aircraft, and I think the Blue Angels maybe were were part of that that did a flyover. Huh. Uh, and uh, Jackie Souter, who was the uh, conductor of the official Seattle World's Fair band, uh, was on the platform to uh, do the national anthem. Uh, it was it was a really exciting moment, uh, uh, both for really inaugurating the World's Fair. But I, I tell you what what really happened at 12 noon on uh, April 21st, 1962 when that fair was officially opened, I think that really was the impetus that officially brought Seattle to the attention of the world. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was quite a, an exciting moment. And for um, a young kid like me uh, 
to uh, to have uh, a pivotal role in it. Uh, it was uh, it was really really thrilling for me. That's that's awesome. What one sort of question about the you know the whole Memorial Stadium aspect of it? You know, it's built in 1947. There's a wall out front from 1951 with the names of 800 you know, kids, alums from Seattle Public Schools who died in World War II, and it's VJ Day today, you know, it's the anniversary of the end of the war. I mean, Kennedy was a World War II vet. There was a lot of World War II vets alive in 1962. Was there any sense, did it ever, I'm not sure to ask how to ask, ask this question exactly, but was that sense of this being a war memorial, was that palpable, or was that sort of kind of overridden by all the festivities of the fair? Well, in in, in all honesty, it, it was overridden by the uh, the events of the fair. I mean, the the fair was the the real focus of the day, uh, and uh, that's that was the uh, the attention that was spent uh, on the stadium itself was was for that. Yeah. Uh, there was um, a uh, a number of other celebrations going on around the fairgrounds and all, but. At 12 noon on on that date of the opening day, uh, all eyes were focused uh, on the uh, on the Memorial Stadium. That's great, and the dignitaries there. Now there were other big events here that I've always heard about and have never. I've seen some footage or heard some audio from, but I want to ask you about a couple things. One is the um, the Tommy Bartlett water ski show. Kind of what? Can you tell us what that looked like? What that consisted of yeah, in your memory? Um, well, if uh, if your listeners can picture the the, the oval stadium uh, where the seats come down to the ground uh, at that oval, they had built uh, I guess it was about maybe five or six foot wide moat huh. uh, that was probably about five feet deep, and the entire thing was filled with water circling. The entire perimeter there of, uh, of the stadium, and they, uh, Tommy Bartlett, uh, did a uh, a big water ski show with. Uh, they had a couple of jumps on it, uh, so the boats would go up uh, around the the jump, but the skiers would fly up over the the jump and do aerobatics and then land back in the water, uh, and that was an event that took place uh, three or four times a day every day during the entire course of the fair wow. um, and opening day was the the launch of that but the stadium itself was used for quite a, a few other events that uh, that i remember very well because my my offices as head of television and movies for the fair were in a, another a structure that isn't there anymore but it was uh the old vfw hall oh yeah great um, old building i've seen photographs of it yeah yeah, my office looked right down on the stadium there, uh, so I saw everything that that took place uh, uh, from the uh, from my office window, and and things besides the opening day ceremonies and the daily t- uh, Tommy Bartlett water ski shows. Uh, there was a big circus from Berlin, the Berlin Circus, uh, that played there for maybe three weeks or four weeks. Uh, Billy Graham, the evangelist, did a, uh, a big uh, crusade um, over a couple of days uh, there, yeah. um, and that that really filled the uh, the stadium as well. Uh, the Canadian Tattoo, uh, which is um, an event that is a 
reenactment of uh, uh, the evening routines uh, by military encampments in Canadian history. And uh, so that took place uh, on September 11th, huh. uh, 1962. And that was a, a big, big attraction. And I think they did it maybe, I don't know, four or five nights. And I've, I've heard people say that, that of all the things they went to, and this is, you know, hearing from multiple adults over the years, um, I can remember this going back now maybe 20 years, of all the different, you know, the concerts or entertainers, the thing that really stuck with them was that Canadian tattoo. Yeah, it was it was quite a, an elaborate um, presentation that they did. With uh, They had uh, military, I guess from the Canadian military, but they were dressed. Uh, in the uniforms uh, from all of the Canadian history, huh. uh, going back to uh, the rulers of, from both France and, uh, and Great Britain. And they would do all of these military reencampments. They had a, uh, a building that was erected that looked like a, uh, an old uh, military fort. Uh, <laughs> and they had cannons and everything. And, and then, of course, the uh, Canadian Royal Mounties uh, did a, a big presentation every night uh, as part of that in, in their, you know, beautiful uniforms and all. So it was, it was, that was a really big uh, attraction during the course of the fair. So lots of bagpipes and, and the, drums the and stuff, Mexican, right? Like a, yeah, go ahead. The, uh, the Mexican government uh, sent over for, for one week the uh, Mexican motorcyclists <laughs> who did a, uh, a tremendous show out of uh, out of the, uh, the stadium there as well. See, I love the World's Fair, the whole notion of a World's Fair, particularly in that era. It's all about this internationalism and these sort of um, programs of exchange and cultural exchange. Even if, you know, it's the depths of the Cold War and there's, you know, people are on the verge of World War III in 1962, literally, you know, the day after the fair, you know, Kennedy goes on TV to say that there's missile bases, Soviet missile bases in Cuba. But the fact that all this internationalism is going on, that Seattle is the center of that for six months, that's pretty cool. That's, and the fact that the Memorial Stadium played such a big part in that whole thing, I think that's, that's so significant. And I was saying this before the show to some of my colleagues here, it sort of seems like if, if Seattle has a landmarks ordinance that has any teeth to it or that's worth its salt, if this building, with all that history, doesn't qualify as a landmark, God, what actually does? I just, I'm scratching my head. <laughs> Man. Well, I, I mean, certainly if, you know, if, if I were in a position to be able to vote for landmark status or not on it, I mean, you know where my vote would be. I mean, yeah, ex yeah ex uh, exactly. It, yeah. it certainly played a, uh, a huge role in, uh, in, in my life. Uh, and, and actually, I, I, one of my, my fondest memories um, with, uh, with the stadium was being able to sit in my, my window and uh, in my office, looking down at the area right between the stadium and my office, uh, watching Elvis Presley and all of his gang playing touch football uh, <laughs> down there at the, uh, at the stadium. So there's even a little touch of, of Elvis uh, with Memorial Stadium. That's so cool. I think I can hear him here tonight. I think he's here with us in spirit tonight here on VJ Day 2023. <laughs> Well, listen, Albert Fisher, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love the stories that you've keep, you share about the World's Fair. You keep those memories alive, and you keep the really good histor history and context forefront 
which as the decades go by, it gets easier and easier for that stuff to get lost. And you've always been nice to me well, and always I, been willing I, to I, talk to me about stuff. Yeah, I tell you, Felix, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to have a, a very successful career in the entertainment industry uh, here in Hollywood for all of these years. But uh, my heart and soul always goes back to those six months uh, in Seattle with, uh, with the Seattle World's Fair. Uh, I wouldn't be anywhere where I am these days if it weren't for Seattle and the fair. You know, so I'm always glad to, uh, to promote the city and the fair. You know, and it was guys like you, you know, I know you, you moved on, you worked on the World's Fair in New York, and you worked in Hollywood and everything, but there were so many hundreds of people who worked on that fair in the city, who then, they, it, was like their, it was like a grad school or education for them, and they went on to do all these other great things that the city needed, that the whole region needed in terms of civic organizing and taking on big projects. So it was like a, it was like a boot camp for guys, young guys like you, who then went on to do really great stuff, so... I'm glad to know you, Albert, and I really appreciate you sharing your history tonight on this special edition of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM. We are live at the Memorial Wall at Memorial Stadium, and Albert, we'll hopefully talk to you soon, okay? Thank you very much. Have a good night. We'll talk to you later. All right, this is VJ Day. I want to play a little bit of audio from VJ Day. Let's see. Let's go the, um, we, uh, let's play the national anthem here, just to kind of re, uh, there we go. Columbia's news headquarters in New York. Our last great enemy is defeated. The Second World War is at an end. Ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem. again in the newsroom itself. The Second World War is over. To recapitulate very briefly, President Truman announced that the Japanese have accepted the surrender terms of the United Nations, accepted them fully with no qualifications. In case you're just joining us, World War II has ended. It, uh, it's been 78 years tonight, August 14th, 1945, when World War II ended with VJ Day. We're here on a live special broadcast of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. It's Monday. We don't normally do a show on a Monday. We don't normally do a show out in the field like this, but um, we are here at the Memorial Wall at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium, which has the names of 800 Seattle Public Schools alums who gave their life in World War II, and the whole stadium was dedicated in their memory back in 1947, and it's, I guess it's almost 76 years old. 
we're doing the show as a special, uh, I don't know, tutorial. We're trying to kind of fill in all the context and history that's missing from the landmarks nomination that the Seattle School District prepared or some consultants prepared for them. That's going to be reviewed by the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board this coming Wednesday, August 16th at 3.30 at City Hall. So we're, as a public service, <laughs> it's all for you. We're filling in the blanks and talking to some people who have amazing knowledge about what happened here at Memorial Stadium. Just spoke with Albert Fisher, who's down in California, who was here for the opening ceremonies and organized a lot of that stuff. Joining us now is one of my favorite people, Dave Eskenazi. Can you hear me? I sure can, oh, Felix. I love when I ask that question and you and I hear that answer. Um, thanks for joining us tonight on this special broadcast of Cascade of History, live from the Memorial Wall at Memorial Stadium. Um, well, you're the go-to guy for sports history in the Pacific Northwest, and I think I reached out to you oh, last Wednesday or Thursday and said, hey, you know, you have time to join us on the radio here on Monday night, and you sent me some really cool pictures spanning all sorts of different sports, stuff I'd never seen before about Memorial Stadium. Um, when, I mean, we could spend many hours talking about all the sports that happened here. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the most important sports event or sport or team that's ever played here? Or is there a, is there kind of a penulti- an ultimate moment of, of sports history at Memorial Stadium? Well, I think it's I think most people would agree it's the Thanksgiving Day or the also called the Turkey Day football game there for uh, Seattle and uh, state high schools. The t- tradition that started in 1947 and went through uh, 1971. There's just so many uh, memories tied up with that. It's woven into Seattle sports lore with all the strong emotion and, you know, the lifelong memories of high school football. I mean, there's a there's a reason Friday, Friday Night Lights is so popular. In <laughs> and, and this is our Seattle version, our Pacific Northwest version of Friday Night Lights all took place at Memorial Stadium in those formative years, starting in 1947. And is that's that, number one. Is that game essentially like a state championship in, in many ways, or is it is it different? Well, it was a state championship in the early years, okay. and then it became more kind of a city championship in the late 50s or, or early 60s, so it kind of morphed and evolved okay. over that period of time. But it was always a big deal and a big kind of cultural event in the city. You know, when we had a lot less going in the way of uh, sports, particularly professional sports. Yeah. So a really, really important thing. And I love that it's that second annual Turkey Day game in 1948 that then becomes the very first TV broadcast north of Los Angeles, west of the Twin Cities, when the you know KRSE, which later becomes King TV, broadcasts that game on Thanksgiving Day, it's, and it inaugurates television. We had TV before San Francisco, before you know a lot of other cities in the in the western half of the country. And the first thing they showed on TV was that Turkey Day game in 1948, which I always thought was a really really cool story. So okay, so the Turkey Day game is is on your list. What else would be yep. on your list of big monumental sports history at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium? Well, I'll just backtrack for a second. You'd mentioned that second game being broadcast, which is really a, a seminal event, as you said, and little known, I think, around here. Yep. The first game uh, between Bremerton and Ballard High School <laughs> featured Don Heinrich, who uh, went on to be the star QB for the Huskies in the, in the Hugh McElhaney era, and then a star in the, in the NFL. So it was quite a kickoff to the tradition the wow. year before broadcast. So that was great. It- and uh, just, uh, you know, a lot of things, a lot of other sporting events. The Sounders got their start there in their first two years, played in 74 and 75 when they are in the NASL. Wow. And, now, uh, was, was, was the Sounders, I mean, obviously soccer is huge here in the Pacific Northwest and has been for decades. 
Do you know, was it as, as big a deal or was it was it more, I don't know, esoteric? Or what, in 1974, how big a deal were the Sounders playing at Memorial Stadium? They sold out. They were popular. They huh. were very popular. We had John Best as the coach, and uh, they were very, very well received here. And most importantly, it just started the whole professional soccer tradition, which has been through many iterations. In fact, there's been many, many iterations of the Sounders <laughs> until they finally achieved this major league status and just a, a smashing success, literally, from the beginning. Uh, of this latest franchise here, so that was the that was the very beginning of it. And they played at good old Memorial Stadium. Wow, and that's that a fiftieth anniversary coming up next year. That's incredible. Okay, wow. Yep. All right, what's what, yeah. what's next on your list? Well, also little known is uh, the old Seattle Rangers in the Continental Football League, <laughs> and this was a minor league but a professional football team. And I guess in some way you could consider it to be the precursor of, of the Seahawks because it was the closest. Uh, time-wise to the beginning of the Seahawks, uh, you know, just just a short number of years later. And that was very interesting. And they were playing on the first uh, AstroTurf field for a high school team. They installed AstroTurf at Memorial Stadium in 1967. So these were the first high school teams to play on AstroTurf. And the, wow. the CFL was kind of an interesting little period. You had a lot of former and future NFL players and, you know, UW players on the team. So that was kind of a, again, a little known but fun period. Do, do we know how much those guys got paid? <laughs> I don't think they got paid a lot. I think it's all kind of done with uh, duct tape and baiting wire as far as the, the financing team and, you know, keeping it going for three years, oh, which wow. they did. And who did the, um, who were their rivals? Were there, were there teams in nearby cities or? Uh, teams were mainly in California. Okay. So there, there was not a lot of, you know, teams in the Pacific Northwest. There's a few, but it was, uh, you know, and again, it went through some iterations. There was a team in Spokane for a while and a team in Oregon, but most of the teams were from uh, Southern California. And, and but, we were just, know, we were it, just being ignored as an NFL city because we just didn't have the population or didn't have the, the market size just wasn't quite there yet. Is that the basic premise probably, or? It, you know, again, it's the... It's the South Alaska syndrome kind of way by the rest of the country. And it just took the efforts of, you know, people starting in the early to mid fifties, like, you know, Torchy Torrance with Greater Seattle, who's a, you know, huge UW booster, running these NFL exhibition games here starting in the mid fifties, trying to drum up the civic interest and the financial support to get an NFL team here. It never happens where just one year they decide to do it, the next year they have it. <laughs> There's always a groundswell of activity from sports-minded people and business people and civic leaders to, to try and get it going and all the typical obstacles, usually financing and a, and a good stadium. You know, yeah, those are yeah. the main obstacles. Huh. Um, yeah. I love the idea of the Seattle Rangers playing here in Memorial Stadium and people cheering and the whole sort of the the twelfth the twelfth man all that stuff that was like still many many decades in the future. I mean the 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 roots of it are right here in this facility built you know for in honor of high school kids who died in World War II. It's pretty amazing. Um, it really. Now going back to that 1947 game for a second, um, I asked this of Albert Fisher too about the whether or not the World's Fair festivities in the opening ceremonies in the stadium, whether those sort of sort of overrode any sense of this being a memorial in honor of these high school people who gave their lives in the war. Was it a, was that notion of World War II just two years in the past in 1947, was that more of a bigger deal about the, um, when high school kids are playing here and they're probably, there's, there's 
there's some of their contemporaries have died a few years earlier in World War II. Is it is that present in the in the games, or is the competition kind of blot everything out? Well, I think you're dealing with high school kids, so the athletes, the competitors themselves, they're just you know thinking about competing and you know probably not thinking about the memorial aspect as much as others that are there. But being like like you say that close to the actual uh, you know uh, people passing away and a lot of families being there that had people affected by that. I'm sure it was it was in the air, but I would guess that the uh, athletes themselves are just competing and, and trying to win. Yeah. So what else would be on your list of sports events or sports phenomena that have happened here at Memorial Stadium? Well, something even more uh, obscure, but I think worth mentioning is aside from the Seattle Rangers, there's the Seattle Ramblers football team. <laughs> this was a high-level amateur team that started as the Rainier Beach uh, Athletic Club years back, then moved over to Queen Anne and renamed themselves the Ramblers, and they were coached by the legendary Don Sprinkle. And a lot of, again, former UW players and former future pro players passed through the Ramblers, and they played teams like the Fort Ord uh, Warriors, that had a lot of future <laughs> NFL uh, players all <laughs> guys like that on on the opposing squads and and they you know they raised money to uh you know support uh, needy groups through these these charitable games at the at memorial stadium and so that was a very popular team for a number of years that's almost completely forgotten yeah it's, but, uh, it, it's interesting it's interesting so hearing what hearing you describe those more esoteric or obscure parts of the history makes it almost feel like it's sort of a um like a like a watershed or an incubator like you know like a you know, it'd be hard to have a place to find a place for a football team to play if there weren't an accessible stadium like there, this was back in the 1960s and 1970s. You know, it, it had space available. We didn't have the kingdom quite yet. Um, and high school football stadiums sometimes are hard to book because they're being used by the actual school people. But this has kind of been this, seems like it's been a real community crossroads. More, I mean, hearing you talk about this stuff, it's more than I remember, um, more than I remember understanding how much how, commu- how this was woven into the community. I, I just didn't really appreciate that so much before. Well, it's it's true. And equally important is that it helped create football fans. So when we did finally reach the highest level with uh, the NFL team, you had a fan base. And I think yeah. a lot of that fan came from attending games at Memorial Stadium, Stadium in person. It's different than on TV. And in a lot of those years, we, you know, TV was in its infancy. And you know, you could see maybe one game a week, but yeah. uh, here, it just it, it made football fans. It created them in the area, so I think that's important. So, um, so where does the stadium fit in in terms of you know Seattle history, sports history? I mean, what's its what's its place in the in the firmament or in the in the galaxy? How does it kind of what's the context? How does it all fit into everything? Well, here, here's my thoughts that are a little broader, maybe more than you ask, but uh, <laughs> Memorial Stadium. And that surrounding area is kind of hallowed ground for Seattle sports history. The old Civic Ice Arena was next door. Yep. It was built in 1928, and it was the home to professional and city league hockey from 1929 to 1964, including the pro franchises from the Eskimos through the Totems until they moved to the arena, Coliseum, in 1964. The T-Birds played there later. Memorial Stadium was built on the site of Civic Field, where the Pacific Coast League Seattle Indians moved after the July of 1932 fire that burned down Dugdale Park. Wow. Where they played. 
and they were they played there from 1932 to 1938 and both Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams made appearances as visiting Pacific Coast League players as teenagers at the very beginning beginning of their professional careers so wow. just thinking of those guys in San Francisco Seals and San Diego Padres uniforms playing you know right there as teenagers is kind of uh, goosebump inducing for me and also you know Civic uh, Field was the location for many uh, high-level boxing matches which was the huh. most popular and, and well-attended sport in the 1930s here uh, culminating in the Freddie Steele Al Hostek middleweight championship in 1938 where 30,000 people attended so, wow a lot of stuff has happened in that area. Right across the street where the Gates Foundation sits now, you had Recreation Park, where the Seattle Siwashes played as a charter member of the Pacific Coast League wow. in 1906. Wow. So that little you know, couple of block <laughs> area there, that's not even talking about you know, Climate Pledge Arena, the former Coliseum there. Yeah. It's just, it's all hallowed ground. And, and you know, mainly with Memorial Stadium because of the memorial on the 800 that lost their lives, but in terms of sporting history, extremely important malaria. Right on. Well, listen, Dave Eskenazi, thanks for taking time to share that with us and kind of fill in some of the blanks about the sports history that's not in this landmark nomination. And hoping the Landmarks Preservation Board members are listening in to either the live broadcast or the podcast. And I'm sure I'll find some excuse to call you again really soon to talk about local sports history, okay? That is excellent. Thanks, David. Have a good night. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, we are on a live broadcast of Cascade of History. We're right at the Memorial Wall at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. We've been spending the hour, we're about two-thirds of the way through. We've talked about Seattle World's Fair history. We've talked about sports history, a little bit of TV history thrown in there. One thing, um, for that 1948 television broadcast, it was on November 25th, it was Thanksgiving Day, it also inaugurated the first cable TV system in the country. There was a guy down in Astoria, Oregon, who knew that King KRSC-TV was coming on the air, and he built a big antenna on the roof of the uh, hotel there in Astoria, pulled in that signal all the way from Seattle and amplified it and boosted it and shared it with a little network of TV sets that belonged to his friends and neighbors. And he went on to build a whole cable system. Um, this, this whole thing all starts from a telecast from this Memorial Stadium here right behind me. All right, let's take a little break here from the live stuff and listen to some of this audio. Let's listen to, um, how about this guy? How about, uh, how about... <laughs> Bill Henry at the White House on VJ Day, 1945. Let's see, where is he? He is right, uh, yeah, where is he? Where did he go? Hmm, Bill Henry. Did I not load it? Oh, I didn't load Bill Trent. I don't, sorry. We'll have to cut this part out of the podcast. Um, let's listen to Bob Trout. Uh, no, Larry Lasseur in New York on uh, VJ Day. There we go. New York has been liberated. They're going simply wild down here at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. But this is an automobile celebration down here at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. The cars are speeding past in a mad dash. Just hear those horns. People are hanging onto them too deep, really just clinging to the sides of the cars. The horns are wide open. Their precious batteries may be running down, but they don't care. All the office workers have gone home from this great industrial region. And they're probably celebrating in the great suburbs of New York and the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens. And the streets down here are filled with holiday makers. And there are trucks from all over New York loaded down with bands and youngsters. Just hear them blowing those horns. These speeding cars can hardly stop for the red lights. They're equipped with bells with Halloween horns. This is the greatest celebration I've ever seen. Greater than the liberation of Paris, I think. 
But the churches are filling up, too. Sophisticated New York isn't so blasé as they say. St. Patrick's Cathedral is filling up with people when I came past. Everyone is walking somewhere in every direction. They don't seem to care where they're going, but all they want to do is keep moving. But more than anything else, this is an automobile parade down here at 5th Avenue and 42nd Street. There's no trouble with the crowds. They're all surging forward, probably going over to Times Square or uptown. They're shouting from the tops of the buses. People are shaking hands. People are kissing. People are embracing. This is New York at the end of the Second World War in a frenzy of excitement, wild with joy, expressing their pent-up relief, enthusiasm, and getting rid of their wartime inhibition. This is Ira Lister returning you now to Columbia News Headquarters in New York. Us. That's uh, the great uh, Larry Lesur, one of the Murrow boys uh, in New York City on VJ Day 78 years ago tonight. News got to Seattle about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on uh, VJ Day back in 1945, and the city went crazy. Downtown was packed. The biggest, uh, biggest probably celebration the city's ever seen. Maybe the Seahawk Parade might have e eclipsed it, but it's hard to say. So, all right, um, you're listening to a special live broadcast of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM and streaming at space101fm.org. We're here at Memorial Stadium at Seattle Center, and joining us is Eric Magnuson. Eric, thanks for coming out tonight. You're welcome, Felix. I'm really glad you guys are doing this. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, it's been entertaining to talk to Albert Fisher about World's Fair history and Dave Eskenazi about sports history. And a stadium like this, it's such a wonderful multi-purpose thing. I mean, you know, it's obviously it's built for high school football, first and foremost, but it ends up being used for so many other things. Absolutely. And I was shocked when I read the landmark nomination that didn't mention any of the music that had happened in this place. And I know I used to live on Queen Anne. I remember 30 years ago hearing the... Sure. The bass drum Queen making Anne the well. windows shake yeah. on my apartment up on Gaylor Street. Yeah. So I knew there had been concerts here back in the early 90s, maybe. The Absolutely. earliest, Maybe a little bit before that. But, yep. it's, I mean, so give us kind of a little thumbnail. First of all, what you do work. You, you're, a, you're a tour guide. I'm you, a tour guide. I had started a small tour company. You kind of meet the market. And for me, there was no real sort of engaged music history tour that focused on the grunge era so i had done it originally with the intention of a one-off and i was doing other yeah. tours but this is the thing that people from all over the world come to seattle they search for seattle grunge tour and i tend to meet some very interesting folks that I in bet. most cases are not fixated on individual venues they're definitely focused on bands and sort of broader history but we get into the nuts and bolts of cultural geography as we're walking around that's great what a cool thing what yeah. a cool thing to do okay so cultural geography memorial stadium is there a like a is there the biggest best ever concert here in your mind or is there so let's talk about some of the highlights I guess. sure highlights you know there's there's different definitions of highlights I'm sure <laughs> of so very subjective yeah, term yeah 30 years ago when you mentioned hearing it from up on Queen Anne so 30 years ago or 29 years ago yesterday was uh, a show where Soundgarden was back after their super unknown tour oh, wow. and they did a, a show here that is pretty famous I was at that one knowing it was the most out of hand and our almost to the point of being a little bit violent in the mosh pit in the way that things were you're saying were, that like that's a bad thing yeah Eric, well, i don't understand why you, you look, no, kind of lose yeah. control sometimes but that was definitely one of those quintessential like they're back home where are they going to play they're playing at memorial and i think wow. a lot of people whether or not they were at that show might remember it as sort of 
1994, especially because that was such a best of times, worst of times no year for Seattle and, and music in general, because in April, Kurt Cobain commits suicide. And, yeah. you know, nonetheless, that year, you have four bands from Seattle that debut at number one on the Billboard charts. And wow. it's never happened in the heyday of Motown oh, or man. any of the other sort of regional scenes. Seattle was the white hot center oh, in wait, a lot of ways. What were those four bands that year? So that's Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden. Wow, and that's already 29 years ago. Boy, yeah. that's and, crazy. You know, then just go forward another year. So 1995, since Dead & Company, the um, dead group that was fun fronted by John Mayer were just through to play at the Gorge. A lot of people were remembering the fact that the Grateful Dead played their last shows in Seattle here in 95, and then Jerry died in August of 1995. Oh, so, so what what part, what time of year were the shows here? With they the were dead? in May of So he died just three months after that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it was, you know, there was a period of of him going into a medical facility. His last shows were actually in Chicago at Soldier Field. Okay. But, you know, you can imagine Soldier Field's an NFL stadium. Those were crowds yeah. of 55,000 people. But here, for those last dead shows, it's like 12,000 people. They had played 94, 93, whenever they were coming through. They were regulars here at Memorial Stadium for at least a couple of years. That's and I crazy. think now this summer, I know because we had friends and family staying with us just back in July when they were here for the show. And, you know, people speak of that and they speak of the shows at Memorial Stadium. And you wouldn't necessarily, if you're just walking around Seattle, think of this place as a great rock and roll venue. No, but not at all. You can yeah. peel back the layers and it's that way with so many other places That's around cool. the city. So uh, like a logistic question, was the stage at the West End? At the West End, yeah. And did many people sit in the stands? Or yeah, did, quite okay, a few. Okay. You know, there was a really great multi-act um, use of the stadium in 2000 when the Experience Music Project that's now Mopop oh. did their big opening and they had oh my gosh it was Red Hot Chili Peppers I think as top billing but it was Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Kid Rock and and there were you know fans all the way up through the 12,000 or so capacity <laughs> in the stands and then all through the infield and wow. you know there have been multiple other shows the Metallica show um in 94 was another one that was i've seen some of the youtube clips where you know it's just crazy and full <laughs> and you know and that's also and, one of those shows where if you really dig into the history that was a real sort of tragic indication of what was happening here because alice and chains were supposed to dual headline that with metallica but lane staley's drug issues oh, were geez. becoming so apparent oh, that they realize. canceled and so metallica kind of doubled down but you know magic happens at any rock and roll venue plenty of magic happened here yeah. at memorial stadium and you can take it all the way up to some of the more recent bumper shoot shows that you know odessa that's yeah. as hot and as important a band that's coming out of washington state and they played here in 2017 and the crowds were insane so yeah there's bumbershoot had those really amazing last couple years before the pandemic it really burned incredibly Absolutely. brightly and it's very different now and they're, yeah. they're trying to sort of start it over again start fresh but yeah those are some my, i think my daughter was at that odessa yeah. concert if i remember correctly yeah um and so in terms of the acoustics 
Any idea? Is it just sort of a... Uh, you know, it's a big... You get a little... <laughs> you get probably a little extra coming back to you with the, the grandstand overhang. It on top of Queen Anne Hill. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it goes up and out, um, but some of it comes back, I'm sure. I'm not a musician that was working off of, you know, trying to set up sound for a big arena yeah. show like this, but... You know, I think that in general, it's um, like any outdoor venue that has that sort of containment. It's how much you interact with the crowd yeah. and people really interacted with the crowds here. That's part That's of the cool. thing with a sort of, you know, low rent feeling <laughs> venue. It's got more of a punk feel. Wait, low rent feeling venue. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Apologize to the 800 Absolutely. students who gave their lives. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so I wonder where the green rooms were. Did they must have had trailers or something. Yeah, they had trailers. Okay, yeah, I, mean, I imagine here, the locker rooms here are pretty yeah, shabby. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> uh, you know, I was just through here. My daughter just graduated from high school back in oh. at the end of June. And, nice. you know, like all other Seattle parents, we were here for the graduation ceremonies. And, nice. you know, it, it just was such a nostalgic thing to go back in. But then, of course, you see... Um, ADA type concerns and bathroom type concerns and whatever. So it's all those things could be addressed in a, in a rehabilitation. Be but my, fa be. my fantasy is they do the climate pledge arena approach to this facility, gut it and everything, but save the save the roof line, save the bowl, put I'm everything else. You. 21st century stadium in there, keep the memorial wall, do everything that like they did to climate pledge because That's this right. this this has equal this has more history than climate pledge. Climate pledge was only built in 1962. This was built what. 15 years earlier, yeah, 1947. 47. So, um, now, other than Bumbershoot, have there been other kind of one-off concerts here recently or not? Um, recently, I have to say that I can't point to anything yeah. that's like top of the list. You can go all the way back to when Hart played here in 1977 with Hart, Foreigner. Hart and Foreigner played in Memorial Stadium in, Memorial in 1970. Stadium, yeah. that must, Hart, that's like the peak of their powers, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And just the idea that there are local wow. acts that no are playing here. But then also, like, I'm looking at the list. Part of this, you know, it's not committed to memory. Sure. Because I moved to Seattle in 1993. Oh, okay. So, you have you know, to leave now, Eric. You're not uh, really. Yeah, no, no, sorry, no, I'm not the no, true native. But, no, but you know, you look at the list and you see that Black Sabbath plays here with Blue Oyster Cults in 1980 and <laughs> okay. you know but then go to the much more near term shows and it, the idea of 20 years ago seeing Loretta Lynn here oh, wow. would just be iconic in so many ways. Was so, that Bumbershoot or was that a one-off? That was a Bumbershoot, yeah. And so one-offs, yeah. once again, I'm sorry that I'm not no, pulling a big no, list. That's okay. But, no, no. That's, yeah. you're, doing, you're doing fine. You're filling in a bunch of blanks here. that are, <laughs> None of this is on the Landmarks nomination form. Which is too bad. When you're talking about history and context and what role a facility has played in a community, yeah. beyond the notion of it being a memorial to those war dead, it's been this incredible gathering spot for all this stuff that's just and if you're a landmarks preservation board member you read that and you think oh it's an old concrete building but you're filling in all these blankets yeah. you and dave eskenazi and albert fisher have made this like feel like the place has come alive right now just and we're standing right by it which is that's helping as well but yeah. um i assume most of those one-off concerts were sometime between june and september they weren't pulling shows here in like march or, yeah, or they november were summer were they? shows yeah, and, yeah. and a lot of them were and especially around bumbershoot everything was identified like summer stage and you know that's <laughs> that's the <laughs> idea of this place but you know, Seattleites make do with whatever, and so I can't think of anything that was necessarily a, a November show. But you know, you always finish up Seattle Marathon here, and yeah. there's plenty of reasons to be using this a lot of different times of the year. Now, prior to 1977, is there 
is it possible to identify like the earliest sort of kind of separate concert that happened here that's like a big name act? Or I local think that, that Hart, Hart Foreigner okay. um, Tower of Power show in 77 right. is when it switches over. I think a lot of the complexity had to do with Seattle just in general didn't have a lot of all ages venues, yeah. teen dance ordinance by the time you get into the mid 80s. But, you know, there was a real dearth of great spaces to be booking national acts into besides the theaters that everybody recognizes. So by the time you get to late 70s, where there's a little bit more national touring interest and in coming yeah. through here, that's when there's a little more use of it. But you know, one, this is kind of a jump, but when you go into the heyday of the grunge era and kind of the trailing edge of that, so 94 to 96, when Pearl Jam is, is fighting with Ticketmaster, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, way before Taylor Swift, they were <laughs> I the don't ones. I think Taylor Swift was even born yet. Yeah. No, she was like six years old. Yeah. But okay. then, you know, they, in effect, threw themselves on their sword for a couple of the years that they could have been the biggest earners in music. And a lot of it was tied to the fact that Ticketmaster tied up all the venues. So this, I'm assuming, was for a long time under that sort of AEG, oh. Ticketmaster sort of umbrella. Okay. Okay. So when when that was done for Pearl Jam, when they finally got back to the old venues, it was a little bit down the road, but they did two shows here in 98. Wow. And it was that they greeted the crowd like, hey, Seattle, we're back. And, oh, wow. you know, it was using this space to do that, which is really important. Well, I'm, I'm getting really riled up. I was, I was trying to come into this broadcast with kind of a neutral approach yeah. and like kind of fact finding and everything, but I'm getting like, I'm getting even more excited about how cool Memorial Stadium is in total, not yeah. just the wall, not just the, the, the patch of real estate, but the shell that has contained all this stuff, whether it's sports or World's Fair or the music we've been talking about. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would make one last plug for something I've been very interested in, which is trying to get some sort of on-the-street identification for these sites, and I don't know I when this I think that's a great is, idea. You, yeah. you, I'd like to talk to you about that. I, I was bothering the EMP people to do that back in the late 90s when I first did some projects for them. There'd that be, would be There's a like great the Triangle thing. Recording Studios there totally. on Leary Way. Reciprocal there's, is yeah, super important. And, you know, I was just in London last summer with my family and we did a walking tour of music history in Soho and it's, you know, like what you would expect, Bowie and the Beatles and yeah. Rolling Stones, but there were blue, the blue Those landmark blue markers, markers are that are cool. everywhere yeah, yeah. and they have very complete stories in a lot of cases. Right. So All we right. could Eric, do a lot of that. Eric Magnuson, where's your website if people want to find out more information about your tours and stuff? They can find me at Seattle Grunge Redux. R-E-D-U-X. <laughs> oh, so you have, those, you have those duck boats? You drive around? No, I'm just nah, All right, nah. thanks for joining us tonight on this special broadcast of Cascade of History live from Memorial Stadium. Is You're Louis Larson going to be able to join us now? Oh, wonderful. We're going to talk to the, the legendary Louis Larson. Louis, can you hear me? I can. I sure can. It is so nice to have you be a part of this program. You're, you're Seattle World's Fair royalty in my mind. You're like the most <laughs> famous World's Fair person who's still alive. Um, the fact you did all the advanced ticket sales, you were involved with so much with Seattle Center and the Coliseum after the fair. Having you on this show where we're talking about Memorial Stadium is really important. Um, I wanted to say I, I looked up your two friends, Christy Jewell and Bill Knutson. Yeah. Um, they're, you know they're right next to each other on the wall? I mean, they're, there's, they're in separate columns, but they're right next to each other on the wall at the same, oh, the same level. Oh, I didn't level. realize that. It's, it it kind of gives me chills. Who, first of all, who were tell us tell us who Christy Jewell and uh, Bill Knutson were? They were co-artists with myself on the shingle, which was at Ballard High School's yearbook, 
And the president of National Scholastic Magazine came to Seattle to tell us that that shingle with a Paul Bunyan theme was the number one high school yearbook in the United States in 1942. Wow. And those, they were your friends, but then they lost their lives in World War II. They, they did, and we had uh, we had an agreement uh, that when they came back, we were going to open up uh, an agency, probably down in the Lloyd Building, and uh, our biggest concern was uh, who got their name in there first. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so sorry for your loss. And it's and seeing their names here and knowing that you were so closely involved with the World's Fair and on the campus every day for months during the fair, did you ever think about them when you saw the memorial wall when you'd walked past in 1962? Or were they, were they, was it, had you kind of moved on by then? Or what was, what was that like to be celebrating the no, fair here? The, the, the wall is, is a, a constant reminder even until today. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of conjectures to, oh, well, let's, it's, the war's over. Uh, let's, uh, one one um, politician wanted to build a parking garage there, if you can believe that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and parking uh, parking's uh, important, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, my hope is my I, hope is uh, the stadium is restored. Go ahead. That that location has a great potential for new new major events, and um, it would be nice if we could bring back a tattoo again. Yeah, we were just talking with Albert Fisher about the tattoo a little bit earlier about trying to trying to explain what that is to people who you know who haven't seen that or heard that with all those Canadian pipers and drummers and all those costumes and everything. Um, what uh, what's well, your? I was what, the only one on the staff on the staff that had seen a tattoo before in uh, Vancouver, BC. There was a, a tattoo called a searchlight tattoo in the, in the, the e pavilion, and it was a fantastic show, and I knew they could get it for during Canada week, it would be a, a, a real barn burn. Wow. Well, Louie, what's so, let me ask you a question bluntly here. Would you, would you like to see Memorial Stadium torn down and replaced, or do you want to see the old stadium renovated like they did with Climate Pledge Arena and the old Coliseum? Uh, what would you like to one. see? Uh, <laughs> but, but, but I don't want it to, to disappear. And unfortunately, um, that, that's, that's true in the eyes of a number of people that I've heard heard about, you know, that they think, oh, the war's over, and it's, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the names up there, we'd probably be speaking Germany or Japanese, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. They made the ultimate sacrifice, and the stadium was built in their honor in 1947, and I hope it hope it exists for, so somebody, someone else can be having a radio show here 50 years from now and talking about how important it is to keep these memories alive. Well, Louie, we're about out of time on the show tonight, but it's really nice to talk to you. I hope we can get together again soon, okay? I'll, I'll give you a call, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, your birthdays coming up. How, what's your birthday? How old are you turning on your next birthday coming up? September 23rd will be 99. Amen. Hallelujah, <laughs> Louie. Hey, congratulations. Thanks for all the work you've done for Seattle over your whole career, okay? We'll talk to you really soon, Louie. Have a good night. Okay, thanks. Thank thanks. you. I love Louis Larson. What a great guy. It's always fun to talk to him. We're coming right to the end of our big show here, live on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're at the Memorial Wall at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. Wednesday, 3.30 p.m., the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board is weighing the future of this structure, whether or not it's considered a historic landmark or not. I hope they vote to make it a landmark. 
Until then, I'm Felix Bunnell for producer Laura Scott, for Eric Zappa back at the station, for our guests Eric Magnuson, Dave Eskenazi, and Albert Fisher, and the great Louis Larson. I'm going to sign off here, and we'll head out with the theme music here for Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.